0: Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm
1: Andy Boyle. And today we are pulling back the crypt to review Kevin Smith's 2001 stoner comedy, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Fuck, fuck, fuck. mother, 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 fuck, fuck motherfuck mother, mother, noise 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 one two one two three four noise, noise 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 smoking weed
0: smoking weed, doing coke drinking beer Which we didn't watch high
1: we did not watch high we could have watched high at one point I turned to you and said we should have watched this high <laughs> but I did not remember anything about this movie and would have felt bad if I like, got too out of my head sure. and could not remember the ending of this movie, which in hindsight I thought was the right move to do because, spoiler alert, the back half of this movie is the good part. The
0: good part of a shitty movie. So it's actually kind of like, eh, it's fine.
1: Yeah, it, it's what drags this movie up by its underwear wedgie style into <laughs> not being a bottom five movie. Very,
0: I very fitting for the main characters because Jay and Silent Bob would absolutely give someone a wedgie. Exactly.
1: I, I picked the most juvenile metaphor I could think of because I will say, I think this is one of the most juvenile films we've seen. In fact, just so that I don't keep saying the word in case you've missed it. Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back is the story of titular lowbrow protagonists Jay and Silent Bob as they journey from New Jersey to California in order to stop production on a comic book movie based on their likeness. This second dive into Kevin Smith's cinematic universe is equal parts ridiculously offensively lowbrow and juvenile and a brilliant meta critique of Hollywood itself, leading to a very disjointed viewing experience that made for great conversation afterwards.
0: (laughs) You said titular. (laughs) 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 Boobs. Boobs. Because that's what this movie is. That's the energy it puts out.
1: This movie is deeply misogynistic. For passing the Bechdel test.
0: Yeah, surprisingly.
1: Surprisingly, passes the Bechdel test and is deeply misogynistic, deeply offensive in that first five years of 2000, uh, first five years of the millennium kind of way. And, and smattered with, like, actual good, fun, interesting things that Kevin Smith is trying to say, but it's just like, surrounded by all of the mess.
0: <laughs> um, the American Ratings Association gave it an R for, and I quote, non-stop crude and sexual humor, pervasive strong language, and drugs content. But it's the non-stop for me. They were like, it doesn't end.
1: It doesn't And, and the thing is like, this isn't like Blazing Saddles or where we're like, it's just nonstop, like shock humor. Mm. This isn't even like Anchorman, where it's just nonstop bits tied together by poorly written scenes. It's just nonstop, like potty humor.
0: But well written potty humor.
1: Well written potty humor, but like potty humor. Absolutely. So it, it after this movie was done, we turned to each other and Stephanie asked me if there was anything I would take out of the film. And I was like, there's, there's one thing. Because there's a scene where Allie Larder, who is one of a cadre of like Super sexy, badass jewel thieves. Who
0: are head-to-toe spandex.
1: (laughs) Who who literally wear head-to-toe spandex and have, like, multiple shots where they are posing comic book style suggestively for the camera, which was literally Kevin Smith's intention with that sequence. Oh, for sure. Um, She does, like, this amazing, nonsensical, can't-actually-happen backflip sequence through a bunch of lasers lands and then just instinctively lets out a giant massive fart.
0: And her face is so great when she lets it out as well.
1: Right. Like does the whole like cocks her elbow to the side, lifts one leg, leans over and makes a face like the most comical fart you can imagine. And I was like, I would, that is the one thing I would take out because that is the thing I think I hate the most. And you said...
0: I love it. <laughs> I love it because it's so, it goes along with the rest of the script. Cause earlier Jay says something like, I thought girls didn't eat fast food cause it makes them fart. Right. And then somebody says something. Oh, the other Patsy that they had let on that then Jay kicks out of the car says, girls don't fart silly. Right. Which, his whole thing is a lot. I think you said it looks like a Jim Carrey impression.
1: Yeah, it's it's Sean William Scott of American Pie fame doing this really nebbish, weird, like, the guy who goes to youth group and pretends to buy in so that he can, like,
0: who, so grab can someone's ass. Yeah. yeah.
1: Playing that exact kind of character, which is... Very interesting and against type for Sean William Scott. And it feels like 20 years earlier that would have been Jim Carrey.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In a cameo, for sure. I can't tell what's worse about that character, his braces or his guitar skills. And I know he's supposed to be that way.
1: Well, the real answer is his bowl cut.
0: Oh, you know, true.
1: Yeah. Uh, this is just a weird little... I, I couldn't find anything that really highlighted this. I think it's just a weird coincidence but this film has several actors from the American Pie franchise. And the thing was, this movie came out smack dab in the middle between the releases of American Pie and American Pie 2. So you have Jason Biggs in this film. You have Shannon Elizabeth as Justice, the closest thing we have to a female protagonist. Mm-hmm. And you have Sean William Scott in a five minute cameo. Just in the film, and, like, I'm trying to figure out, was it a corporate synergy thing? Did Kevin Smith ghostwrite on American Pie? I don't know, but it's very funny to watch Stifler, the grossest, most alpha douchebag character from American Pie, be the weird church camp guy for a little bit. Yeah,
0: yeah. This is where I admit I've never actually seen American Pie, and I feel very much, like, more better off for it. Yeah, you're
1: not missing a damn thing. I
0: know dude fucks a pie.
1: Dude fucks a pie. It's a massive plot point in this film that Jason Biggs fucks a pie.
0: Because that's what he's recognized as, is he's the pie fucker, and he's real sad that he's the pie fucker.
1: So for context for you and for anyone else who hasn't seen American Pie, which is now a (laughs) 23-year-old movie. Sure. Um, Sean William Scott, who in this film is the guy with the guitar and the bad bowl cut, he's his character in American Pie is like the total party bro Chad who absolutely wants to sleep with anything that moves and, like, convinces girls to have wet T-shirt contests and pours beer directly over their tits and is, like, a very... 2001 lowbrow kind of character but a very alpha kind of character so it was just it was just weird and interesting
0: i wonder how much of the extra appearances like some of it you're like oh yeah these are kevin smith's friends these are his people like matt damon and ben affleck being in the movie like that makes sense but like some other people i'm like do you think kevin smith was just like oh my God, you guys, I have money now. Do you guys think I can get George Carlin on this movie? Yes. Do you guys think I can get Mark motherfucking Hamill and Carrie motherfucking Fisher on my movie because I have money now and I'm going to pay them what they're worth? Like how much of this is just like him being like,
1: (laughs) I think a huge amount for sure. Like this is, so this is the fifth movie he made in the View universe. And it is the second one that we watched for cult fiction, the first being Clerks, which you know we go back and listen to that episode. But it was the thing that made Kevin Smith, it put him on the map, it made him an overnight indie film sensation. And he just continued writing films with all these characters, including this one, which at the time of writing was supposed to be like his goodbye to this universe to Jay and silent Bob and all the interconnectedness. So I absolutely think it was him being like, I have made it. I have made it so many times over. I am writing comic books. Now I am like capital K capital S Kevin motherfucking Smith. I get to cast all my heroes and best friends in this film. I a hundred percent agree with that.
0: Well, down to the fact that when Mark Hamill shows up, Shows his face, because he also voices Scooby.
1: Right.
0: Um, When he shows his face, it's like, laugh, kids. It's the Mark Hamill. And you know, just in the background, he's like, the Mark Hamill is in my movie.
1: For sure. And I will say, I saw the back half of this movie in the middle of the day on Comedy Central when I was like 10. Okay. And that's the only time I've seen it. And the only thing I really remembered about the film was Mark Hamill as the villainous cock knocker (laughs) with his giant hand that gets cut off by a bong lightsaber. That was the only thing I retained. So when the movie told me, hey kids, applaud, it's Mark Hamill, I was like, holy shit, the Star Wars guy.
0: (laughs) He can do
1: that? Yeah, but what happens when they pick you up and you don't make with the head? Don't they kick your ass to the curb? Sure, if you don't make with the head. I I wasn't incredibly inquisitive about this before this point in my life, but this was the movie and seeing Mark Hamill specifically was the thing where I was like, Oh, so like, as like an actor, you can do other things. It's not like you make it and then you're just in the star Wars movies and you don't need to be in anything else. You can do like other projects. Wow. You were what? 10. I, nine, ten, this came out in 2001, so depending, okay. depending on what year I saw it, I was either nine or ten, yeah.
0: That may that's that time of life where that makes sense, that realization that, like, not only are actors actors, but, like, they can do other things other than be this one character.
1: Right. Because, like... I'd only ever watched the Star Wars movies over and over again, and like Mark Hamill's an interesting case because he's not in a bunch of other stuff. His face isn't.
0: In His face isn't in a bunch of stuff. other stuff,
1: and I was too young to like understand the nuance that he was the Joker, and I was watching him literally every Saturday morning on on Batman. Uh, but I digress. That was one of the things, that was the thing that I remembered most about this film. And yeah, I just think it's absolutely Kevin Smith, like, on the one hand, doing this love letter and getting to do all of the things he ever wanted to do in a movie. On the other hand, getting to do a biting critique of a bunch of Hollywood things He's got so many meta moments where the actors literally look into the camera after saying something very applicable to Kevin Smith's own life. Weirdly, he was like totally ahead of the trend on the Marvel cinematic universe and how like in real life, comic book writers are getting characters that they invented 30 years ago, turned into movie characters. But like, the comic book writer who wrote it 30 years ago can't afford his own dialysis because Marvel and Disney will not pay for the likenesses for his characters. Like Kevin Smith bullseye hit the arrow on the head on that specific Hollywood problem, which is really interesting to me. And on a secret third hand, which is maybe Kevin Smith's dick in this metaphor, juvenile poop humor, fart, (laughs) slurs of every kind, homophobia, misogyny, just kind of dumping all that out there.
0: So you have, okay, so to follow your logic and restate it, you have three genres of this movie. You have stoner comedy. Yes. You have writhing critique of Hollywood. Yeah. And then you have meta-examination of... Movies, movie making, movie writing, and the movie business as a whole.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that.
0: Okay. I think the the latter two kind of are one genre.
1: Right. I, I think it's the writhing critique and the um, stoner comedy sprinkled with I get to do whatever I want.
0: I think, like, A good love letter should also embrace the realism of the thing you're examining, especially when it's a love letter to uh, an art form, not necessarily a love letter to a person. Sure. Although Shakespeare did that too with like, my lover's eyes are nothing like the sun, blah, 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 blah. Dark
1: Lady of the Sonnets. Yeah.
0: I think it's also Kevin Smith's id of being like, no one can stop me. Yeah. I get to do whatever I want. Because, like, in the philosophy of id, ego, and superego, ego, it is the one who's, like, telling you, you can't eat cake. Or you have to eat cake. You get to fuck whoever you want. You get to run out on the streets naked. And I feel like this movie was the movie where Kevin Smith was like, I can do anything I want to now.
1: Yeah. I, I a thousand percent agree. Like, this is the first film that his wife appears in and his wife is another one of the cadre of hot latex women, specifically Missy, who is the one that is not Shannon Elizabeth, Eliza Dushku or Allie Larder. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. That is Kevin Smith's wife. He casts his daughter, Harley Quinn Smith as the young version of himself like he just gets to do whatever he gets, he gets to hold the fact that he was the one who helped uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck get Goodwill Hunting off the ground over their heads. That's one of the meta moments where they sit there and they're talking to each other and they're like, "Sometimes you got to make a movie as a favor to your buddy." They both look directly into the camera. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's absolutely him just lording his power. So is it good? It's good for Kevin Smith. Like, it, like not good for him, but like, good for you, Kevin Smith. This is like a wonderful thing for you. If it weren't for the fact that your best friend is going through heroin withdrawal and is a nightmare to work with, this would be like an amazing personal experience for you, the person Kevin Smith.
0: But is the movie good?
1: No. The movie is half good. The movie... The the movie is good in places and as bad as anything we've seen in other places.
0: I don't want to mislead our listeners in thinking that the meta parts are all good because there are a lot of them that hit the nail too much on the head where it's almost cheesy. That's fair. So, like, while the stoner comedy bits can be funny and fun, I think just as equally a lot of the meta stuff can be a little much and a little stupid.
1: And that's fair. I am willing to totally um, buy into the idea that I like it more than it's worth because of how much I hate the other parts.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, I get I, that.
1: I deeply hate parts of this movie and the other bits shine by comparison.
0: That's fair. I will say one of the stoner comedy parts that I love so much is when Jay and Silent Bob are about to steal the monkeys, the apes, the chimpanzee.
1: Indeed. The the orangutan. The
0: orangutan. And they go through the parking lot, and they're totally visible, and they're doing, like, cool stealer guy moves, and they're, like, rolling around on the concrete. There are some really lovely moments in the shittiness.
1: I I will agree with that as well. Yeah. Like... George Carlin is in five minutes of this movie and it's in the part that I consider to be the bad part. But I like literally went, ah, George Carlin. Because it's George Carlin. It's George Carlin giving a a diatribe about how as a hitchhiker, it is your obligation to give road ahead.
0: Sometimes you got to do it. (laughs) You got to follow the rule of the road.
1: Indeed. Carrie Fisher's great because immediately after that, Carrie Fisher, in her cool era, is playing a nun and picks them up. And there is a miscommunication on letting the Holy Spirit and the good book of the Lord guide your life and letting the book of the road guide your life.
0: You live by the book, too? I do, but do you... I guess I gotta.
1: Guess I gotta. Tries to go down on a nun.
0: Listen, some nuns. (laughs) I'm just saying there are a lot of nuns who have left the nunhood to go be married to
1: someone. And Carrie Fisher would have been one of them in a universe where she is a nun.
0: She would have.
1: (laughs) Speaking of really quick because um, we've, we've talked all about it, returning to cult fiction for this film, Carrie motherfucking Fisher, mm-hmm. all of the four main male actors from Clerks, Kevin Smith, Jason Mewes, Jeff Anderson, and Brian O'Halloran, as well as Will Ferrell, Jon Stewart, and as a fucking delight to me, Morris Day and the motherfucking time. <laughs> you don't know Jungle Love? That shit is the Mad Notes, written by God herself and handed down to the greatest band in the world. The motherfucking time! You mean the guys in that Prince movie?
0: <laughs> because we don't want to re-watch Purple Rain, but we want to re-watch those parts of Purple Rain.
1: Yeah, like, I don't need to re-watch Purple Rain, but I would watch all of the music performance segments Absolutely. on, like, repeat on YouTube
0: absolutely it's so entwined with the memory of getting our first covid shots though that yeah. like even the thought of rewatching it i'm like well it'll have to be under 17,000 blankets
1: yeah kind of gives you like the ptsd sweats yeah the little yeah. like
0: feeling at the back of your throat
1: <laughs> off topic but i want to talk about it the-, the feeling
0: at the back of your throat when you have to hitchhike
1: hey now No. (laughs) Uh, I want to talk about how the crypt exhibited some actual magic. Okay. Because on the day we are recording this, it is the first day that the Screen Actors Guild has gone on strike to join the, the Writers Guild of America. And just the fact that on the same day it lines up that we're talking about this movie that is in part a damning critique of Hollywood and specifically the nasty tendency Hollywood executives have to selling rights to characters and not caring about fair pay or compensation. Like I'm just, I'm a little spooked by the crypt here.
0: The crypt has always been magic. Yes. So like, I'm not at all surprised. She's just sitting there going like, You guys ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) She's pleased with herself, though.
1: She deserves to be. She's moisturized. She's in her lane. (laughs) For sure.
0: Speaking of moisturized and in her lane, another one of my favorite charming parts that are definitely in the stoner part of the movie is when Jay and Silent Bob go to a different gas station. Right. And they're trying to, like get in their zone they're trying to like figure it out and they're like it doesn't fit it doesn't feel right okay maybe if we switch places
1: they're trying to lean against plexiglass instead of the stone brick of the quick stop alleyway that they're accustomed to and it just doesn't work
0: and then you come to find out later that there's like standing outside of a convenience store guild and tracy morgan tracy jordan tracy morgan i never thank you because i've watched so much 30 rock and because of how i came to know him i have a very hard time remembering which one is his actual name fair tracy jordan morgan Morgan. god damn it morgan is one of the famous leaners and presents his like convenience store leaner card and he's like oh i'll hook you guys
1: up i'll tell you where to go and like names his own character pumpkin escobar which feels like a 30 rock bit <laughs> hey but
0: what if my name was pumpkin escobar lemon Try, i don't think
1: so <laughs> yeah exactly this movie has like so many amazing little cameos. And I think that's part of the reason why I like it as well, because <laughs> I am a little bit of a slut for a funny cameo. Oh, you
0: are a slut for a funny cameo.
1: I am. There's a bit where Gus Van Sant, famed indie director and the guy who directed Goodwill Hunting, is directing Goodwill Hunting 2 Hunting Season. But really, what that means is. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are directing themselves and he's counting the money in the corner and like is visibly annoyed anytime they ask him to do his job. And that's actually Gus Van Sant, who is like one of the most off the walls indie directors in Hollywood.
0: I'm glad you know these things. This is why I have a podcast with you. Fair. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is the shit you know. But I love that because there are so many moments in this movie where you're like, this is more endearing because of who is playing that role. Yes. Like Mark Hamill. This is more endearing because it's Mark Hamill. And that's why we're calling it out with a goddamn cue card.
1: Right. Absolutely. And and it was supposed to be somebody else. I, I can't remember who. It was supposed to be somebody else in that role, and then they got into scheduling conflicts, which adds credit to your theory that Kevin Smith was like, When am I ever going to get an opportunity to work with Mark Hamill unless I can make it work here? And he mm-hmm. does.
0: And he almost worked with. No, that's not this movie. That's the sequel. Never mind.
1: One thing I I did notice, and this will transition us into another talking point very nicely, uh, Justice, who is played by Shannon Elizabeth, was almost played by Heather Graham, Mm -hmm. famous for stuff like Boogie Nights and The Hangover and so many things. And Heather Graham read the script and decided it would be a better idea not to be in this film. (laughs) And I cannot I, fucking blame Heather Graham no. for going, Kevin. This is not a character. This is this is not a real person. I don't know how to play this. I'm not going to.
0: You know, fair. I will say it's the character of Justice sells it in that she's just so dumb.
1: It. Yes. yes. I don't know if dumb's the right word, which She's is part of my... simple,
0: bless her heart.
1: Yes. Justice is a deus ex machina level of complacent with what the plot needs from her. Yeah. Like, she immediately falls head over heels for Jay of all fucking people. Easily the more repugnant and, like, offensive and awful of the two.
0: Yeah, in the world where you're playing Fuck, Mary, Kill, Jay, Silent Bob, and Randall, you kill Jay.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: You absolutely kill Jay. You marry... Oh, wait, who do you marry?
1: You marry Kevin Smith so you don't have to listen to Randall talk about Lord of the Rings versus Star Wars for the rest of your life. True. You have one weird night with Randall... And then you go off into the sunset with Silent Bob. Okay.
0: True confession, the first time I saw Clerks, I had, like, a thing for Randall because he was the one who got all the funny lines. Right. Because he was supposed to be played by Kevin Smith. Right. So.
1: And I I, I don't know if we touched on this when we had Alex, your husband, on to talk about Clerks. Oh, my
0: God, is he my husband?
1: Yes. Yes, he is.
0: Oh, my God. Thank you so much for explaining that to me. I didn't
1: know. I'm Explaining for any listeners who didn't catch that, you goof. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Um, just all that to say, uh, Alex is Randall. Like.
0: Oh, a thousand percent. Yeah.
1: In the way that that movie helped shape him, he is Randall more than he is any other character in that movie.
0: Which brings me to a point can we talk about Jason Mewes and Kevin Smith's real-life relationship? Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: So I, in an effort to take our podcast seriously, which I always do, I try and look up things about the movie and I try and find an angle of, I have to identify with this somehow. So I um, read this amazing article um, in the New York Times about... Um, about Jason Mewes and Kevin Smith and how they met. Mm. And they met when they were, like, small children, like, teenagers. And a bunch of his – a bunch of Kevin Smith's friends were, like, hey, you know who's really cool? That Jason Mewes kid. And apparently Kevin Smith was, like, the dirty mouth kid from in the city. I don't know about that. And then, like (laughs) – Two days later, Jason Mews shows up at his front door and goes, so what are we doing today? And just like, that's how they became friends?
1: Which is very sweet and like that boyhood fantastical, like that's just how you make friends when you're a little kid.
0: Well, and it reminds me so much of... My husband, Alex. <laughs>
1: and you mean my podcast partner on my other show? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know
0: him? It just reminds me so much of his relationship with his best friend, of, like, the yin and the yang. Of They are two very different personalities. And we had a conversation about, like, do Jay and Silent Bob like each other?
1: Yes, because there are very... Specific moments where Jay is, like, vocally in support and showing platonic affection for Silent Bob. Mm-hmm. I'm Jay. This is my non... This is my hetero life mate, Silent Bob. And, like, kind of defends him and, like, kind of stands up for him. Mixed with a relentless barrage of fat phobic homophobic toxic masculine like jabs is too soft of a word verbal attacks at silent bob
0: yeah just fucking
1: say it already the sign on the back of the car said critters of hollywood you dumb
0: and the way i kind of thought about it is that they Love each other the way that teenage boys did in the late 90s, early 2000s, violently, vehemently, until it emasculates them or threatens their existence. Sure. So, hence the, like, when they're running from the cops and they can't, it's almost that they don't get away because uh, Silent Bob gets stuck in the pipe. Yeah. Yeah. And Jay makes a Pooh Bear, Winnie the Pooh Bear joke about his waist size. Right. Um, and it's just like, oh, that's hurtful. But it's coming from a place of, like, defensiveness.
1: And, and this gets into how we had a, a very nice conversation with each other after we uh, finished the movie. because
0: we don't, we don't talk off of the podcast.
1: <laughs> this can spiral in so many different ways. But something we brought up is... Kevin Smith is the writer. Kevin Smith is writing these lines that About are directed his own damn to, body. His, to his character. Yeah. Unless Jason Mewes did his own dialogue, which I'm almost positive he didn't, but it's possible.
0: No, because apparently Jason Mewes in real life is like a very quiet, not out there kind of guy. Like yeah. when he's not filming, he's still delivering pizzas.
1: Right. The, the thing that I love about their relationship in real life is that exact fact. They've got the, it's the same thing Penn and Teller have, where in performance, one talks nonstop stop and the other is silent, and in real life, it is the exact opposite. Because Kevin Smith is the voracious, potty mouth guy who just can't stop talking, and as you say, Jason uses is the demure one.
0: Apparently, a lot of his own personal dialogue is a lot of, yeah, what he said. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, Kevin talks for him. So him writing all of Jay's lines of like making him seem like this crude, loquacious motherfucker is really funny because in real life, he's just like, yeah, Jay talks, or Kevin talks for me. Yeah,
1: for sure. I will admit, and it's it's probably an era thing. It's probably an age thing. I do not understand how these two characters became as much of a moment of the cultural zeitgeist as they did. Because Jay and Silent Bob are the breakout characters of Clerks. They are the mascots of the View Askewiverse. The only reason Kevin Smith made this film is they threw Jay and Silent Bob randomly into Scream 3, And everybody was really happy and excited to see them again. He was like, oh, shit, I guess I'm going to write a movie about these guys again. I do not get why everyone, like, loves those characters so enduringly as they do. I can kind of get Silent Bob because, like, silent, beleaguered person. I, I think at the end of the day, I just hate Jay. Like I hate Jay, I would not associate with Jay, which is, I guess, the point.
0: Yeah, I think they they I think they blend well together. Sure. It's Kevin Smith's amazing facial acting, his body mannerisms that perfectly encapsulate a point, and the foul, colorful pictograph sure. that is Jay
1: there's got to be some sort of like intellectual commedia dell'arte like the 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 archetype of the archetypical clowns of entertainment that they like fill that void for a moment there's got to be something about that but sure
0: you can break it down into literary archetypes but i think at the end of the day it's that they're incredibly human mm-hmm. like Jay is so, so, so defensive. And he comes with a huge set of armor, except for this one person. Sure. And I think one of the most lovely things about this movie is that he falls in love. He doesn't... Yes, he wants to fuck Justice. Yes, he wants to bang her. And he makes sure she knows it multiple times. Indeed. But he also is... Obsessively in love with her. Like when he thinks she dies, he decides he has to keep her monkey because it was his ex girlfriend's monkey.
1: He exhibits actual personal growth when he makes the conscious effort to call her a nicer name than, hey bitch. So he goes with, kitty boo boo fuck. <laughs>
0: Which I cannot take seriously coming out of anyone's mouth. So I just applaud this actress for just doing this role and trying her best. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Why
1: not? (laughs) Um, Of course, the other thing, and I do absolutely understand the appeal of this, is it's fun to watch when Silent Bob can't be silent anymore.
0: When he loses his shit.
1: The moment where he is screaming in Jay's face for like a solid minute over something obvious that Jay was too much of an idiot to understand is cathartic and appealing. And especially when you know that Kevin Smith almost had to fire Jason Mewes because he was too much of a pain in the ass on set because he was going through heroin withdrawal and he was late and he was erratic To know that and to feel that actual, like, oh, I don't think Kevin Smith's acting when he's screaming in this guy's face is, there's something there that I do appreciate.
0: That hits different for sure.
1: Indeed.
0: Okay, what is worse, this or weird science?
1: Oh, boy. Probably the other most juvenile film.
0: That's why I'm comparing. Well, them. okay, I've,
1: I got I got one, but I'm gonna answer your question first. Um, I really don't look back on Weird Science fondly.
0: No, me neither. It,
1: it feels like anything that I could say positively about that film has to do with the French supermodel who they got to play the love interest, whose name I cannot even recall. So that's why I'm going to go ahead and say Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back is the better of the two films. I think it has something more to say. Yeah. I think it's not um, a film that uh, What's-His-Face from Pretty in Pink wrote because he had, like, a free weekend to write a movie.
0: John Hughes?
1: That guy. That's how much I didn't like weird science. It made me forget John Hughes' name. (laughs) But I turned that question back around to you because I remember what is actually the other most juvenile film we've seen. What was worse, this or Beavis and Butthead do America?
0: They both have a scene with that fucking dam.
1: They both have a scene with the dam. They both, like, they almost have overlapping plots like Jay and Silent Bob are trying to go stop uh, trying to stop the movie being made. Beavis and Butthead are trying to get their TV. There's a a media thing is the goal and they have to literally cross the country to get to it.
0: And they both get co-opted into someone else's schemes. Yeah. And there's a scene with a nun in both of them.
1: There's a scene with a nun. There's lots of juvenile comedy. There's lots of, look at these idiots being two idiots. That is a double feature we need to, like, I will not watch unless we get high.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Um, You know what? I, I will say that I would probably rather watch Jay and Silent Bob. But, like, it's close, my guy. That's fair. It is very close. That is
1: very, very fair. I cannot fault you for that.
0: Is it Colts? Did this make too much money?
1: This made a profit, for sure. Okay. This, um, it it didn't make the three times. I I think it actually, like, just fell short. I was just looking at this, um, and then I went to a different tab uh, because I am that nerd who looks at the financials. It made 33 million on a $22 million budget. So no, it, it, it did not like it didn't bomb, but it didn't do great. So I don't think it made too much money. Um, I think this is cult because like I was kind of alluding to, Weirdly, Jay and Silent Bob themselves are cult.
0: Yeah, they have over-enthused fans.
1: Over-enthused fans. They can just randomly appear in a piece of media completely related to anything else and be recognizable as the thing. And some dude in the audience is going to like, woo when Jay and Silent Bob show up in Scream 3. Um, that was you, wasn't it? I did I did not see Scream 3 until I was, like, two years ago, so, no. <laughs>
0: until you were, like, two years ago? <laughs> 29?
1: Yes, that. What buzz? The internet buzz. What the fuck is the internet? The internet is a communications tool used the world over where people can come together to bitch about movies and share pornography with one another. Um, I, I think it, part of the thing that helps to be cult is the View Askew universe. Yeah, like twenty years before the MCU, Kevin Smith was doing the shared cinematic universe thing, and like I don't know if we're ever gonna watch Mallrats or Chasing Amy or Dogma, which is all the other ones that are like in this, but it was a thing and it was a established thing. And actors from all of those movies, playing characters from all of those movies appear in this film. I think that really helps it become a cult thing because all the people who saw Clerks and Chasing Amy and Mallrats went, oh, it's the guy from, it's it's Ben Affleck's character from Chasing Amy being his character in Chasing Amy and then later being Ben Affleck. Yep. So I think it's cool because of that. Um, I think it's cult because all of the comic nerds and 12-year-olds and stoners who watched it fell in love with it. I think one's cult in the bag. Fair enough.
0: I'd definitely rather watch Howard the Duck than watch this again, though, I think.
1: Interesting.
0: But I also have already seen this movie at least three times now
1: sure sure it's it's right on the edge yeah it's it's right on the i will say this film is capable of giving me genuine laughs and howard the duck was not so i don't think i can cross that bridge with you
0: you've known him a week (laughs) you laughed at that part that i remember i'm
1: shocked you remember that i don't
0: know why (laughs) Because I have a great memory.
1: Oh, is that a fact? Okay, well, does your great memory lead you to be able to win this week's game of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon?
0: Kevin Smith was in Dogma with Linda Fiorentino, who was in Queen's Logic with Kevin
1: Bacon. Okay. All right, so you could do it in two. That I cannot beat that. I, I will go ahead and say um, I cannot beat that. Um, but what I will say is, Carrie Fisher was in Hook with Dustin Hoffman, and listeners, I cut it out. But in real time, I, I, Stephanie learned this fact because I said it and. Got very, like, emotional thinking about Hook, as one does. As one does. As one does. Carrie Fisher was in Hook with Dustin Hoffman, and Dustin Hoffman was in Sleepers with Kevin Bacon.
0: Nice. So you also did it in two.
1: Yes. I could not beat you. We tied.
0: Okay. That's fine. We (laughs) mostly tied.
1: We mostly tied. I was actually kind of surprised, given the Matt Damon and Ben Affleck of it all, Because I did double-check. You cannot actually do it in one with either of them, weirdly. Interesting. I know, right? Anyway...
0: Anyway, you know what else is interesting? Our Oscars. Our Oscars. Would you like to go first?
1: Of course I would, because every movie on cult fiction deserves an Oscar. I don't think Kevin Smith has ever been nominated for an Oscar, and I kind of don't see that changing. So it's important we give him a couple while we can here. Um, And I would like to give Jay and Silent Bob the Oscar for most accurate look into a 12-year-old boy's head. Specifically for the moment I mentioned where a skin-tight, leather-clad action babe makes a massive fart joke.
0: And makes an accompanying fart face of just... Perfect. A+.
1: I love that this is an audio medium, and so that was just for my benefit. Just
0: for you. You're (laughs) welcome.
1: What is your Oscar?
0: My Oscar is also just for me. My Oscar is for Weirdest Nepo Baby. Okay. Because, like you mentioned, Baby Silent Bob was played by Harley Quinn Smith, who is Kevin Smith's daughter. And I just love the idea of Harley Quinn being like, Oh yeah, um, my first role in Hollywood, I was a baby. I was playing a baby version of my dad, who you probably know as Silent Bob.
1: Yeah, I mean, if if being named after Harley Quinn yeah. is not already a stone around Harley Quinn Smith's neck, her first role coming from playing a baby version of her father certainly won't be. <laughs>
0: I love that, and she's in the uh, Redux too.
1: Yes, yeah we we are straight up not going to watch it for Cult Fiction. I think we made the decision that we are not going to do the twenty nineteen Jay and Silent Bob reboot movie. But we also agreed we kind of want to watch it just to see what Kevin Smith like felt he had to say.
0: Bonus episode. It'll be ten minutes. Deal. Okay. A gentleman's agreement. Huzzah.
1: Fantastic. The other gentleman's agreement that we have on every episode is a gentleman's agreement with the magical Hollywood crypt itself. Hallowed be her name, which I just got wrong. (laughs) And that gentleman's agreement is a contractual obligation to go to our random number generator And then take our list of 271 movies that we assume to be cult and figuring out what the next one we're going to watch is. And next time on Cult Fiction, we are going to be watching number 253 of 271, which is, ooh, the 1998 pseudo-David Bowie biopic Velvet Goldmine.
0: Oh, interesting okay oh we were so close to fright night
1: we were also so close to the texas chainsaw massacre
0: which i did make a reference to this week that i wanted to be gagged with the chainsaw from texas texas chainsaw massacre so it's fitting
1: it's fitting but instead it's gonna be a velvet gold mine
0: oh i'm so excited you're
1: gonna to have to settle for watching ivan mcgregor and jonathan rise myers be gay at each other
0: Oh no, we'll have to settle so (laughs) hard.
1: You can find Velvet Goldmine on YouTube, Apple TV, Google Play, and Vudu for $4 a pop.
0: Ooh. I'm very excited about this. I've never even heard of this movie. But that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at cult fiction cast you can also follow rate and review us on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts we'll close the crypt for now
1: but join us next time as we take in the 1998 drama velvet goldmine and figure out is it really a david bowie pseudobiopic or is that just a thing people say online that i read a bunch as we watch velvet goldmine for stephanie johnson i've been andy boel